The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. everyone and welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm Dr. Sharon Berquist, a lifestyle medicine, healthy aging, and prevention physician. Each week on this podcast, we have in-depth, behind-the-scenes conversations with people leading the way in lifestyle medicine and wellness to help you live your happiest, healthiest, and most fulfilling life. Let's get started. 2022, I think, is the year for well-being, and I'm so excited to have as our guest today, Dr. Tim Cunningham. Tim is co-chief well-being officer at Emory Healthcare in the Woodruff Health Sciences Center at Emory University. He holds a joint appointment as adjunct associate professor at the Nell Hodgkin uh, Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory Healthcare and serves as vice president of practice and innovation for Emory Healthcare. He collaborates with interprofessional teams to support structural and systemic well-being change for healthcare staff and professionals, university staff and faculty, researchers, learners, and community members. His clinical background is emergency nursing, and his first professional endeavor in healthcare was as a hospital clown in the Big Apple Circus. Tim, thank you so much for joining today. Sharon, it's great to see you again. Thanks, thanks for this chance to chat a little bit. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I have to start off by giving you big congratulations on this new position. Um, very exciting and very challenging, I'm sure. Um, as background to our listeners, um, the Corporate Office um, of Wellbeing at Emory Healthcare was just recently announced. Um, and I'm excited to get your kind of background it, you know, behind the scenes of why it was started and, and just get to understand the work ahead a little bit better. Absolutely. And this is exciting. This is our first interview in, 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 in sharing about our Office of Wellbeing. And we are in the process of naming the office, and I'll share with you all and the listeners, we're calling it MWELL, uh, so E-M-W-E-L-L, Emory, Emory, and it's Emory's Office of Wellbeing. We sit within the Woodruff Health Sciences Center, which means our office is accountable for and supports all staff that work for Emory Healthcare, all staff. And when I say staff, I mean doctors, nurses, faculty, and learners with our Woodruff Health Sciences School. So that's our School of Medicine, our School of Nursing, Rollins School of Public Health, Yerkes National Primate Research Center, and our Winship Cancer Institute. So that's a whole lot of people that our office is accountable for in thinking about and working towards supporting systemic and structural change to help build well-being amongst our teams within within the Woodruff Health Sciences. You know, Sharon, you asked about sort of some aspects of the originations of this office. And I can say that leaders at Emory have been working towards building this office for years. There was a report that came out of uh, a Blue Ridge Consortium of uh, leading medical centers talking about the pressing need to better support well-being for staff in healthcare settings. This was far before the pandemic. Um, And the question was that I think took a little bit of time to figure out is the so what? So if we change policy, for example, to create more space for well-being amongst our staff, let's call that well-being psychological safety, what benefit will we get out of it? I think we know as human beings, it feels good. It makes us feel more engaged. It helps us, you know, feel more present and hopefully compassionate with the people that we serve in healthcare. 
but there still is really no, you know, clear return on investment, investment or clear business model. So a lot of folks have been talking about well-being nationally for a long time, but very few folks have taken the steps in setting something up. So we're really excited that we are now actually setting up an office and we're going to start doing some things around being the well-being, um, around supporting the well-being of our teams uh, across the Woodruff, Woodruff Health Sciences. We know for sure that healthy providers, healthy nurses, healthy technicians, I like to say we cover, we go from valets to vascular surgeons, from anesthesiologists to zoologists with this office, A to Z. And we, we know when our teams are high functioning, the outcomes, especially in healthcare, look like higher quality, reduced safety instances, so therefore improved safety, and also hopefully retention such that, not that we're keeping more staff here, and that's important, retention's always important, but most importantly, what I'm interested in is, can we support the well-being of our team so when they leave work, they can go home and be the best wife, husband, partner, best friend, pet owner, lover, grandfather, grandmother, aunt, uncle, whatever you are outside of work, can we create a workplace so that when you leave work, you can be your best loving self with the people you love the most? And for me, that's what well-being is all about. Oh, that is a, such a beautiful mission. And of course, there's a lot getting from where we are to where we need to be, because this is such a big, complicated issue. And as you said, it's systemic, it's individual. There's so many factors to, to think about. Um, yeah. So I want to back up and just say MWELL. Everybody heard it here first. There you go. MWELL. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I want to maybe take a step back and um, talk about the current factors that got us here? Like, why do we need this office? Like you said, it's been years in development pre-pandemic. So clearly there are systemic issues that have arisen in healthcare. Can you give us a little background about pre-establishment uh, you know, of this office, um, what the big factors are that have been taken into consideration? Absolutely. And I did some of my doctoral work on this. And one of the big stinky factors, as I published in my dissertation, I wrote frequently the letters BO, stinky BO standing for burnout. And if we think about burnout, um, I'm going to date myself here. The first known in nursing publication published on burnout was published the year I was born, which is 1978. And folks have been writing about burnout in nursing and medicine and all sorts of the other uh, professions, physical therapy, occupational therapy. We see a lot of write, written about burnout. One consistent thing we see is that there has been a consistent rise in burnout amongst healthcare professionals. Um, and I'm going to get snarky for a minute here. We're getting a little burned out on burnout, meaning there are a lot of cross-sectional studies, a lot of papers saying, we have burnout. Look at the burnout. Here's the burnout. But there are way fewer papers and interventions saying, this is what we need to do about it. So I think one of the leading factors towards building offices of well-being is the ongoing rise in burnout. And to create an office of well-being, that's one way to say we, we want to do things across the system 
to help decrease aspects of burnout. Because we also know as burnout as burnout arises, the detrimental effects of it. People feel more withdrawn from the work they do. They feel like they are less capable of doing what they 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 used to love doing. They might feel less compassionate towards the patients that inspire them to become a physician or become a nurse or become an APP, whatever their role is, and they feel that disconnect. And then at worst, with rises in burnout, and we're seeing this, we see rises in addictive behaviors, we see rises in suicidality, and, and the most extreme results of feeling burned out. But Sharon, I got to be honest with you. Sometimes even when I say the word burnout, I see people roll their eyes because I think we've talked about it so much. People start to say, well, you, all you do is talk about it. So what are you going to do to change it? And that's where comes the role of the Office of Wellbeing at this institution and institutions around the country. So I think burnout's been a leading factor. I think also understanding more clearly that health, and that's what I love what you you discuss in this podcast, health is more than just medicine. Health is more than just going to see your physician or your APP. Health is more than just a surgical procedure. Health is the whole big picture. And if the person who's supposed to be providing you healthcare is not healthy themselves, how are they going to transmit or share that health with you, your, your, you as a patient and family? So also the, the importance of offices of well-being are because they focus on staff to help support systems so staff can be healthier. And if you're healthier, you know, as a provider yourself, when you're at your best, don't you feel like you can provide the best healthcare to your patients? And if you're if you're not there, I would assume it's it's harder to really be connected with your patients. That was my experience as an emergency nurse. The days when I wasn't feeling healthy, I didn't feel like I provided the highest quality of care that I knew I could if I was in a better place. Yeah, you know, Tim, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And it's not just in terms of the bandwidth, obviously, when you feel better, you um, kind of have more of yourself to give to other people. But what I find even more profound are the intangible ways we communicate our internal state externally with our patients. Um, it's in a lot of even nonverbal, it's the um, kind of aura, if you will, yes. um, that gets transmitted. So there's so many ripple down effects of physician and provider well-being. Um, I want to ask you, you know, there's so much I want to touch on, but the pandemic, of course, has, you know, been an issue related to well-being. In a lot of this, we've talked about started pre-pandemic. How do you think the pandemic has impacted this burnout topic? Um, the pandemic has been a call to action around burnout. I think just as we see with the great resignation, a lot of people empowered who are able to walk from their jobs to either retire early, to leave their professions completely, that's a clear signal that we as leaders need to listen to closely that says people don't have to be stuck in a place where they're really disconnected and really unhappy. And that movement has also driven the call even further to say, stop talking about burnout unless you're actively doing something about it. Stop making me fill out another survey to measure if it's there, if I'm not gonna get anything back to help my team and to help others. So I think the pandemic has really driven a clear call to action about what can we do to start mitigating things. And it's also given us permission. I think about um, that great song by Leonard Cohen, Anthem. 
And there's a line in the song where Leonard Cohen sings, there is a crack, a crack in everything. And it's through the cracks that the light comes in. There's a crack in everything. And it's through the cracks that the light comes in. The pandemic has shown light through so many cracks in our health systems. And in that, providers, professionals, whatever your role in role is, people are standing up and saying enough is enough. And if we don't make change, people are standing up and saying that I'm out of here. So it's on us as leaders to really start activating change and sharing, taking risks, which I think many health systems and hospitals were kind of risk avoidant before the pandemic, because maybe it really wasn't that big of a deal. It hadn't really fully bubbled up and you know we'll, we'll keep powering through. We can do that. But now we're at a point here at Emory and across the nation where I think we're called to take meaningful, evidence-based, but meaningful risks to try to actively do things to better support our teams. Otherwise, we'll continue to lose our teams. And we're seeing that across the country. Right. And, and so, Tim, what does that risk look like? It begins with, I'm going to say it, be careful, the V word, vulnerability. <laughs> That's going to say there are a lot of V words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That vulnerability. <laughs> it begins with vulnerability and, 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 and being okay with not having the right answers. I think medical professionals, we, we are trained at these great institutions to be right, to nail that diagnosis, to lead the conversation when we're working with patients. We got to flip that narrative and be okay with not being right, to support leaders in transformational leadership, to walk into a meeting, not necessarily knowing what the outcomes are going to be, and to be able to, to improvise with those outcomes to listen to what's really going on. Um, Ryan Stevenson, author of the book, Just Mercy, talks about this idea of proximity, where he says, the people closest to the problem are also those closest to the solution. The people closest to the problem are also those closest to the solution. So Sharon, going back to your comment earlier in, in providing care with patients, if your health is not quite there, you know it's hard to connect with patients sometimes. Um, what if our patients are actually the experts on their own health? Imagine that. And so when we're working with our patients and listening to our patients, can we listen to them with a sense of vulnerability and acceptance? Because maybe in the nuance, what do they say in medicine? 90% of the diagnosis is there in the history. And yet we know we have such limited time to actually listen to our patients to get a good history. There's some irony in that. So what if we think about that and taking more time to listen with vulnerability, to not always be right, and then learn from the folks closest to the problem and then use our skills as leaders to elevate that, escalate that, and then build meaningful programs around that. One thing we're doing right now with the office, one of the first steps that we're taking is we're doing listening sessions. My colleague, Dr. Chad Rittenauer, who's the co-chief wellbeing officer, side note, something that's really spectacular about this office is that Chad and I are code leads. And this is one of the first, one of the few, if not the first offices in the nation that is an interprofessional well-being office. Most well-being offices across the nation are run either by a physician, most of them physicians, a, a small handful of them by nurses, very few, and to my knowledge, none, but again, my knowledge is limited, I could be wrong on this, are interprofessional. So as Chad and I partner on this, we're beginning with listening sessions across the Emory Enterprise asking questions. What does well-being mean to you? What does it mean to be well? What do you need to be well? 
We're collecting those data. We're working with some students from the Rollins School of Public Health to do a very massive qualitative analysis with the intention of understanding what what is how is well-being defined here at Emory, here and now. You said in 2022, the year of well-being. I couldn't agree with that more, Sharon. So here in 2022, what does well-being mean for our people? And from that, we will then build our, our, our programs out of the office. But the first thing to do is to listen and learn. You know, Tim, there's so many things that you said that really resonate. Um, I'll start off with your comment of making our patients the expert in their health. And I have long felt that care needs to be entirely patient-centered, driven by patient agendas in the context of patients' lives through their story. But to listen to that story takes, as you mentioned, time. So there's inherently systemic issues. I completely agree it translates to better patient care. It translates to happier physicians because the greatest gift I ever have is being written into people's stories, right? Yes. So it's a win-win, but there are all these systemic forces, not just at Emory. This is national. This yep. is driven by you know, the, the industry of healthcare and how care is delivered. So these are, you know, steps that are huge and steps in the right direction. But any step today is obviously a baby step towards those bigger problems. And, you know, it also then makes me um, kind of think of that Blue Ridge report, as you mentioned. And I think there's a quote from that report that touches on this. And I'll just read because it, it so hits the nail on the head of why there's frustration over hearing this term burnout when it's not matched by action. And I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but it's, they said in their conclusion, it is clear that the quote healing of caregivers cannot be accomplished solely through quote self-help just as the best care for patients is achieved through teamwork and support, addressing the challenges of burnout and advancing the wellness of healthcare providers will also require leadership and institutional commitment to achieve optimal results. So there's this system level work that is so challenging, right? Because we've been doing this the same way for so darn long. And now we have to reinvent that. I'm going to ask you <laughs> this incredibly hard question. Where do we begin? The nice part about answering that question is that we've already begun. And a key aspect of the work that Dr. Rittenauer and I are working on with this office in our listening sessions, in understanding what well-being means and looks like, we're also assessing what's already going on. And I can't tell you when the announcement came out about this office, how many people reached out to the both of us saying, you know what, I'm doing, I'm running this wellness committee here in, in my section. I'm, I'm doing this, you know, midnight chair yoga thing for night nurses on our oncology unit. Um, I'm running this, I've changed this, I've done this. So we're learning more and more. The work is already happening. So a big part of our, our lift will be, how do we help construct a lattice around this work, a net, a network to help people, one, not feel totally alone in the work 
and also to acknowledge and acknowledge by name the folks that are doing this work and elevate their voices to help build that up. So there are elements of the net that are so close to each other, and we hope that we can help bring those pieces together. So the work is already being done, but there's so much more work to do. And Sharon, you named it well. Um, each step might be a very small step, but it will be a step in the right direction. One example I'd love to share with you, early on in the pandemic, we worked with nursing leaders to do a close examination of charting requirements for our nurses in the ICU setting. And we learned that following all state and national guidelines, there were still elements of things that nurses were charting that they weren't required to chart. And it was just back to that, well, we've always done it this way. I, I once worked with a colleague years ago who, who um, I, they brought an idea to me and I said, I don't think we can pull that off. You know, it's never been done before. And then their response was, well, Tim, for a long time in this country, women also weren't allowed to vote just because it had never been done before. And that's the mindset we have to work with and remind ourselves, okay, so what? It's never been done before. That's good data. But what does that really mean? So we went through and we found things that nurses actually weren't required by state or national law to chart. And then we, we reached out to them and said, you don't have to chart that any longer. Now, some of our team members pushed against that and said, no, that, that messes up my practice. I'm not used to that. I've never done it before. And then other people said, oh my God, now I have more time to be with my patients. So that's one example of finding those. Another example is we've already worked with teams before this office, office was established to change system-wide policy. We're about to roll out a, patient dis a disruptive patient policy that's created an, an algorithm in the policy for all staff members if a patient approaches them with verbal, nonverbal, or physical um, abusive language, action, actions, or even body language, this policy empowers our staff to speak with the patient and say, that's not acceptable here. If the staff member is not comfortable, it gives them an algorithm of things they can do to elevate that to protect the well-being of the staff. So when a staff member is told by a patient, I don't want you to treat me because you look like this, or I think you believe this, we can now say through policy that we as staff members are protected and will be backed up. So it's changing those policies. We recently changed arrest-related policy for our nurses and nurse techs, making it okay to rest at work. We know every year multiple nurses die while driving home after working a night shift because they're exhausted. We've changed a hydration policy, making it more clear where people can take sips of water during their 12-hour shift. So it, we are chipping away at this iceberg, but we do that through small policy change like that. We do that through socializing the policy, through addressing policies that say, Sharon, you're good enough. And we know you're good enough because you work here at Emory. And we want to honor you and we want to create structures so that you can be the best provider you can be because you're good enough, you're wise enough, and you've made it. And we want to celebrate you. That's the structural change that we're trying to work at. And it's going to be a huge lift. And I think as Chad and I continue to do our listening sessions, we're learning more and more clearly how much work there is to do. And yet at the same time, how much is already being done. Oh, that's so exciting. And, and, you know, as you're telling me this, Tim, I'm thinking about the structural and you brought up these great examples. It's just simply getting fluids during your shift and, and, you know, and I'll add to that even the chance to use a restroom during a yes. long shift, which I think, you know, sounds absurd to people outside of healthcare when you're within the system it's a real issue because it can be so busy, right? So it's like these simple basic human needs go a long way. And these are important structurally, but I'm also struck by 
some of these examples also touch on culture, right? So some things don't require a structural overhaul. There's simply a change in structure, uh, I mean, in, in culture of having people um, feel more welcome, empowered, um, and uh, people of all backgrounds. Can you talk more about how that sense of improving people's sense of belonging interfaces with the Office of Wellbeing? Absolutely. That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. And to one aspect, a sense of belonging, a sense of mattering, a sense of knowing your worth goes back to this concept of psychological safety. Psychological safety, meaning if something comes up in the workplace, do you feel safe no matter who you are, what you believe, what letters are behind your name? Do you feel safe to speak up to say, this is not safe, let's change this practice? As a nurse technician, for example, do you feel safe enough to go to an attending physician and say, can we rethink this? Because I'm worried about the safety of the patient. That's psychological safety. What is that rooted in? That's clearly and directly rooted in diversity, equity, and inclusion and programs around building that and supporting that. So one thing that is absolutely clear with the well-being work is that if we don't fully integrate like a, a net or a web well-being work with diversity, equity, and inclusion work, then we're going to completely miss the boat around well-being because psychological safety is key to well-being, which is fully, deeply connected with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what are we doing with this office here? We're meeting regularly with our diversity, equity, inclusion uh, leader for Emory Healthcare, Ildemaro Gonzalez. We're working with the teams and we're constantly asking our, ourselves and our questions, um, are we making sure we have a diversity, equity, inclusion, a DEI hat on while we're making these well-being related decisions? Asking other questions like who's not at the table? And if their people or roles not at the table, what can we do to bring them to the table next meeting? Actively working on our own listening skills. Um, I've had the opportunity to co-author a textbook on self-care and well-being. Got a lot of publications. Some people call me an expert in this work. And that makes me feel both proud and a little bit sticky because I still have so much to learn. So how can we make sure, Chad and myself as leaders, that we don't always sit at the table thinking we have to have the answer? Because that's where we go wrong. We need to sit at the table to listen so that we can understand and learn, not listen so that we can have the right answer. And I learned those words. That's a that's a rough, rough, almost direct quote from our, our head of HR, Lalisha Bailey. She taught me that when she came here. Um, so how do we improve that listening and always think about the integration of DEI? Without that, I think our work will, will fail. And I don't want to sound all, you know, gloom and doom, but if we don't incorporate DEI and show the interconnectedness, um, well-being can't really thrive the way it should. So it's a priority. And it's a huge priority. And, and, and I'm so glad to hear that. I wanted to get your take on, you know, this is such a big concept, if you will, of how, you know, do we shift this culture? Can you talk about what the priorities are? I know this office is just getting started. It was just established, brand new. Um, you probably haven't had a chance to get the lay of the land, if you will. But can you talk, or are you even yet at the point where we have clear priorities for 2022? Mm -hmm. And so we do have clear priorities 
but they're clear with a little bit of gray. And, and, and you nailed that because the grayness is around as we understand more clearly how well-being is defined amongst our teams and amongst our peers, that is going to affect details of our priorities and the work that we do. And so until we have that definition, you know, we don't want to set anything in stone. But what I can, can say is set in stone with our office for 2022 is um, we're part of the Woodruff Health Sciences, again, which means that covers our health sciences schools, inclusive of Emory Healthcare, our priority in 2022 is really going to be Emory Healthcare. And that's directly from the pandemic. We know that our team members are suffering, continue to suffer, and, and many will suffer to some extent for the rest of our careers because of what we've experienced. So one priority is how do we lean heavily into both understanding of interventions around and policy related to our healthcare workers? from valets to vascular surgeons. So that's one clear priority. Um, another clear priority is that our, is around metrics. Within this year, we want to clearly help understand and define what are gonna be the key metrics that we can share and collect related to well-being work across the system. There are also, as, as there are many well-being programs across Emory going on with some extraordinary leaders that inspire me every time we have phone calls and I learn about the great work they're doing, so too are these leaders kind of using different metrics. And when you've got different metrics, we know as scientists and researchers, it's like comparing apples to oranges. So we do want to clarify metrics around how we collect data on well-being and then share that with folks so we can kind of come to the table at the same table. And then that way, by having the same metrics over time, we can really understand true change. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there, be honest, we're probably still going to measure burnout and I don't want to scare anyone off. But what's good about measuring burnout is that then as we lean into interventions, if we're using the same burnout metric and we see that change, then we know the interventions are doing something. So we still got to measure it to some extent, but we need to measure it while we're doing something about it. So healthcare focus, metrics focus, and communications focus. That's going to be a third top priority. Can you have a top priority? Doesn't priority usually mean one thing? Maybe a third top objective? I don't know. Number three. I believe is, in three. So, threes. Okay. so, so three threes. Threes. <laughs> yes. So that's perfect. So number three is refining communication so that what we communicate out of the office is meaningful. It's not an email that you just delete. Um, it's maybe not even an email. Maybe it's a QR code that when you want to learn about what we're doing, we got QR codes posted everywhere. You click on the QR code and you get a real-time update of not only the work that's coming through the office related to the work across the Emory Enterprise, and also maybe it's the voice of a staff member who is doing the work boots on the ground. And we're, we're talking about some interview programs and things like that to really highlight the individuals doing this work. So it's going to be healthcare, it's going to be uh, metrics, and it's going to be communication. And within that, look out for the communication to understand more clearly what those priorities will be as we understand them more based on what we learn from people like you. Well, I look forward to seeing those communications and emails, and I will not delete them. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and Tim, now I want to um, just take a, a minute and and just zoom out now to wellness in other corporations across the country in 2022. So we're certainly in healthcare, the offices of well-being and um, well-being officers are being established in multiple companies, different industries throughout this country. And 2022, the timing um, of where we are with the pandemic is certainly, as you mentioned previously, a huge factor. Um, 
What will 2022 look like for wellness and well-being nationally? Um, what are your thoughts and, and projections? So my thoughts and projections are biased. I'll put that forward. And it comes from being a nurse, an emergency nurse. I We're going to see more interdisciplinary, interprofessional well-being attributes. Now, there's some research that suggests, you know, only a specific specialty of physician needs well-being interventions that are very specific to this. And so you got to do it in a group and you got to do it in a cluster and your own group that way. I mean, there's some good research around that. I think that holds, but I think that's also missing the boat sometimes about what it means to be engaged in community of caregivers. So I'm hoping that we'll see more well-being that's more inclusive, professionally inclusive, um, and interprofessional that way. I think we're also going to see more uh, well-being related work that leans into financial well-being. You know, some of the early well-being work looked around self-care, individual self-care, yoga, meditation, all that great stuff, great evidence behind it, but didn't really touch, you know, what does it mean to have financial well-being? And I think with the great resignation, I think with the the agency nursing uh, concerns that we're having, like all of the staffing stuff, we're also seeing that financial well-being is key. So I think that's a Pandora's box that we need to open. And I think people have been afraid to open it because folks don't like talking about money because then sometimes if they talk about money, people are going to ask for more money. Then they're like, we don't want to pay more. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't mean to exaggerate or generalize, but I think we're going to talk about money in a more meaningful way. And I think it's time for that. Um, and, and our nurses are leading us to that. And I'm glad because it, I think it's real. So financial well-being, interprofessional well-being. Um, I think we're going to see way more offices on well-being. I don't know if we'll see it this year. I'm hopeful, but I feel like in the next two to three years, we're going to see some very robust uh, business cases for well-being that start to say, if we pay staff two days of their time a month, for example, to do well-being specific work, even though that's a cost that's not generating revenue for the system because you're not, you're not treating patients, you're not bringing money in. I'm hopeful we'll see clear business cases that say, says by investing that time in our people, by giving them more time, by reducing their administrative load, giving them time to practice well-being in a work setting, we're going to see long-term return on investment and actually generate money from it. And I, sometimes I feel gross saying it, but we live in a society that is focused on making money. So how do we build business cases in favor of well-being to show that? That's my hope. Oh, I, I love it. And, and and it certainly, you know, touches on the metrics issue because some of that benefit is intangible um, and very hard to capture. It's very subjective, I should say, instead of intangible. So yes. um, those metrics are always more challenging. But Tim, I can't think of a better person to be leading the way. And I'm very excited uh, that you are taking this role for the changes that are to come for us and certainly nationally. So big thank you. Very exciting. Is there anything you want to share that we haven't had a chance to touch on? A couple of things, very briefly. One is my gratitude for the opportunity to work with Chad Rittenauer, that this can be a partnership. I mean, just what we're learning from each other and and to work with an emergency nurse and a surgeon and, and just all of these interconnections is really inspiring. And I think what 
both of us bring to the table will evolve to something that neither of us could have ever thought about on our own. And I think that's where we're going to need to go. And so with that, it's gratitude for that opportunity. And then just gratitude for the listeners who've taken the time because you care, because you're invested in people, in your people, in your teams, in your family, in your community, in the patients that we serve, because you're invested in something more than just the financial investment, which is bringing health and bringing health through the time of this peri-pandemic stage, which is this time of profound crisis. Um, so just gratitude for you all who are listening and all the lives that you're helping save and all the people that you are supporting. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. And, and for those people listening, um, just a reminder, if you like this episode, please remember to share with the people around you. Um, and hopefully we can change the culture together. So thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you, Tim. Thank you, Sharon. Take care. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org slash livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.